Uh, we are in a series called To Number Our Days. We're actually in uh, our lesson number five. Kind of crazy to think. All right, if everybody would, we're going to go to 2 Samuel 7, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. I love 2 Samuel 7. Now, as a backdrop, okay, they call this the Davidic Covenant. This covenant is so similar to the Abrahamic Covenant, but it's, it's different. We'll get into the differences here in a little bit, but I do want you to know 2 Samuel 7 has over 40 biblical passages that just talks about 2 Samuel 7 all throughout Scripture. That's how important this chapter is. That's a lot of references, by the way. All right, 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, it says this. Now, we're going to begin to unpack this Davidic covenant. When the king had settled into his palace, David, when he had settled into his palace, now we know that this palace was built and established through the Phoenicians in 2 Samuel 5. So they help give everything that they need. You guys, when you have so much favor, it just, it pours on. You just, you get poured on to. Like David is just receiving favor is really what it comes down to. So it says that he had settled into his palace and it says the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. Now, typically when a king actually is at rest in the Old Testament, that's when things don't go well. David actually could be an example of that. But in this context, as things had settled down and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. Now this rest implies, you guys, all of the enemies, like they're done fighting right now. Uh, here we have, and so here we are in 2 Samuel 7 verse 2. Then the king said to Nathan, this is David talking to his buddy, the prophet. Look, I'm living in a cedar house, which I love the smell of cedar, by the way. While the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. In other words, David's kind of starting to feel bad. Like, hey, by the way, God has like this temporary house and I've got a sweet house. And he says, in verse three, Nathan then tells the king, this is the prophet, go and do. I love that language. Go and do all that is on your heart for the Lord is with you. Now, <clears throat> let me just tell you this. Nathan is speaking from his heart maybe, but he's not speaking from the Lord. When somebody asks you for something or somebody speaks into you about something, pray before you release a word. I'm not saying God can't overcome it and God can't use this, but Nathan the prophet releases, hey, go and do it. They have a past, you guys. Nathan and David have an awesome past. In fact, uh, you know, and so there's this trustworthiness that's already there. And in fact, um, Nathan down the road in 1 Kings, he helped Bathsheba actually secure the throne for Solomon. Nathan actually helped with music in the temple worship. Uh, he wrote about the chronicle reigns of David and Solomon. David eventually named a son after Nathan from Bathsheba. So David and Nathan are close. So when David says, hey, by the way, I'm thinking about something that I want to do for the Lord. Nathan doesn't even question. He just says, go. And so in this process, it says in verse four, but that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I love what God says here. I have not lived in a house. Instead, I've been moving around it with a tent as my dwelling. In other words, we're going to write a couple of things that you're going to see here. Okay, so number one, what does God say? He says, Pretty straightforward. I don't, no need for 
a home. I'm just going to throw this out there. Please don't counter back with this. I kind of have to wonder sometimes if number one is a prophetic picture for Christ when he comes here on earth. Christ didn't have a home. What does God tell David right away? I don't, I don't need a home. It's kind of a cool picture, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with because it's, this is not really the temporary place anyway. Or this is not the eternal, this is just a temporary. So this is the mentality. And so he just says, you know, I've been moving around with a tent as my, as my dwelling. I'm okay with the, the portable. That's really what he's saying. But then he also says in verse 7, uh, in 2 Samuel verse 7, he says this, In all of my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever asked anybody among the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar. So number two, you know what he says? I have no need for a home and I've never commanded, not commanded anybody to build one. Say that again, Kevin. He's, he hasn't even, God hasn't even asked to be built, not, not commanded, but not he even He hasn't asked. even talked about it. Hey, you know, I was thinking about shiplap. What do you guys think? <laughs> No, nobody even, and then he even gets into this and he says in verse 8, well, let me just back up. Okay, so number 3 is really important. He doesn't say it here, okay? But I want to give you another aspect of this. This comes from Tom Constable. David was an inappropriate person to build the temple. Why? Because of the blood. David, don't build. Okay, because of blood. God says, you know what? I like the idea, but you're not qualified in this. You bring some baggage. I also want to say this. You're bringing some baggage and you're not building it. You know, there's a quote by A.T. Pearson. Now, can you imagine, I'm going to come back to this quote. Can you imagine now, Nathan, he's getting a download from God in verse 8. He says, now this is what you're to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And then he says in verse 9, I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before you. But he doesn't talk anything about him building a house. So can you imagine, I'm going to get into what he says, the prophet, his buddy, comes back to David and says, Hey, David, by the way, that whole game plan, it's not going to happen with you. David basically sees whatever he wants to come to fruition. There's this quote by A.T. Pearson, and it really speaks to me. Disappointments are his appointments. I love this language. Disappointments are his appointments. Can you imagine David before he heard the good stuff? What do you mean I'm not going to build this temple? I want to be the guy that builds him a home. But God says, I have something so much bigger and better. You thought this was going to happen, but I'm going to blow you out of the water. And so the prophet Nathan's coming back to David, and he says, hey, look, you're right. You're you're not going to build this. But in verse 9, he says, look, I will make a name for you like that of the greatest in the land. Does that not sound like the Abrahamic covenant? In Genesis 12, I'm going to make your name great. He says this to David, I'm going to make the name in the greatest in the land. Genesis uh, 12, 2. You want to go there, Kevin, for a second? Genesis 12, 2. I want you to see these similarities. And so what I love about this, this is the quote-unquote the no section, right? 
And I think what happens is sometimes people live their life in the know. Ah, oh, God said no, so therefore I'm stuck. I wanted to build a house. What do you mean? Now I'm not, what do you mean because of my past? So we live in this place, right? But God begins to promise to David two things while he's alive. One of them, he promises, and he says this, I will, in Genesis 12 too, just like Abraham, I will what? I will make your name great. He says the same thing to David, except in this context, the yes becomes, I will make your name great. You know, there's a text in scripture that when you humble yourself, he will do what? He will exalt you. He will lift you up. So God, I want to do this for you. No, I'm actually going to lift you up now. Too many of us want to start in the yeses and we don't go. It's just like we live in this place. And he overwhelms them. This prophet says, hey, by the way, I'm going to make your name great. And he says in verse 10, I will establish, this is why you're alive, David. I will establish a place for my people Israel, and then I'll plant them. I love that language, by the way. I'm going to plant them in soil, in good ground, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I'll give you rest from all your enemies. That the Lord declares to you. Isn't this an awesome picture? Uh, Kevin, can you go to Genesis 15, 18 through 21? So the second promise that he gives to David, don't worry, this is all a setup, by the way, for where we're going to go. <laughs> okay, this is the no section. And now while you're alive, I'm going to give you this. Now, as a language, in Genesis 15, 18 through 21, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. I give you this land to your offspring. From the brook of Egypt to the, to the Euphrates River, to the land of the Canaanites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, uh, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. I'm going to give you the land where all the enemies are. This is the exact same thing he just told David. It's all building. One of the things you got to keep doing is keep connecting the dots. I promised to Abram that lineage is now going to go to what? Into David. Like, it's a promise that's going to continue on. And if you see just Abram to the end, you miss the whole thing. So you have to see the connection of the Davidic covenant, okay? And he says same things. And by the way, this promise of why you're alive, I'm going to give you a place for Israel. Now, Kevin, what do you think a place looks like? Well, in my mind, that would be land or a building or it's, it's a physical property. It's a physical property that he's going to plant them there. I'm going to give you a great name, David. And oh, by the way, I'm going to give you a home. Right? I'm going to give you a land. And he has a sign, by the way, outside of Israel, do not disturb. That's what it says. Evildoers, right? It says in verse 10 that the Israelites are going to live there and they cannot be disturbed again. Here's the point. God's hand is all over Israel. And in 2 Samuel 7, you're going to see some of this language. Israel is mine. Don't touch it. So when you have these Iranian guys that are saying, hey, by the way, we're going to wipe off all Israel. I just want to say good luck. God is bigger than your threats. And that's not me talking all tough. This is me as a David holding the stone saying, my God's bigger than Goliath. You see, he gets it. David understands from the beginning. He gets it. So when he hears this language, nobody's going to mess with you. Oh, yeah, I've seen it before, and he's going to do it again. 
He prepares us in the past to get us ready for now so that we can walk into the future. Like, that's how this thing works. There's a no, but he says, oh, but I have a whole lot of yeses for you. And this language is so clean. And yet what he does is he begins to say, this is going to happen in your lifetime, by the way. But there's going to be some things that are going to happen after you die. And so let's begin to unpack this. Now, remember, the prophet Nathan, his buddy, his pal, you know, he's even a namesake. He comes to David. And he says at the end of verse 10, evildoers will not afflict them as they have done ever since the day that I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. This language is a dynasty. I will make a dynasty for you. And by the way, it's going to be of a long duration. And so what you have here is this. These are some of the things that are, these are the yeses, by the way. Okay. And these yeses are while he's alive. Now, these are going to be when David's dead. In verse 12, it says, when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, when you die, that's what the language is. I will raise up after you, your descendants. So now the promise is coming into place. Who will come from your body? Okay, this is Solomon, by the way. I'm going to give you a son that's going to come from your body. And Bathsheba, this is going to come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So what are some of the promises that he gives in the yeses after David is is dead? Well, one is he's going to get a son. And two, I think the language is here, is he's going to have a kingdom. And how long is the kingdom going to be for, Kevin? It doesn't say that yet. It'll be forever. It will be forever, but his son comes while he's alive, but it's talking about his son will establish the kingdom. Let's go to verse 13. You're right, absolutely. I'll establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name. My son will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, let's go back to David's original heart. He just wanted to build a home for God. Nathan goes and sleeps on it. He gets a word from the Lord. Oh, by the way, the Messiah is going to come through you. What? That's the language that he just heard. You're going to have a son, and this son is going to establish a kingdom forever. This is a little kid that used to be out in the fields taking care of sheep. Please know this. God wants to use every one of us. Do not overlook or underestimate the work that he's called to right now. He could be preparing you for the end. He could be preparing you for more. I know that sounds so drastic, but if he did it with David, why can't he do it with us? David was an adulterer and a murderer. And God radically said, I'm going to use you. So just to reiterate verse 13, he will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of the kingdom forever. Now what you see in verses 12 and 13, this is kind of what we would call the heart of 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to wrap it up in verse 16 because it ties it all together. I just want you to, I don't want you to miss 12 and 13. This is a great place to highlight it, a great place to circle. This is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant comes into 12 and into 13. And then in verse 14, this is where we start getting, it starts getting fun. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 
When he does wrong, I'll discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. Kevin, there's the unconditional. So even if my son, your son, turns against me, I'm going to use the rod, I'm going to discipline him. But Kevin, what does he say? He's not going to leave him. He's not going to leave him. Saul, he did. I'm tired of Saul. I'm done with Saul. The anointing left. But David, it will never leave. The anointing of David will never leave. I just like this imagery of, of who God is and what he's doing. So, Kevin, let's go back to 2 Samuel if we can. 2 Samuel. Uh, where are we, Kevin? Verse. Uh, it's probably going to be in verse 16. Verse 16, it just says this. This is kind of your... Uh, it's going to summarize everything. And he says, your house, and by the way, this is going to be your outline for the rest of the message today. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So remember, verse 16 is a summary. Uh, it's reiterating 12 and 13. 2 Samuel 12 and 13 is 2 Samuel 7, 16. Okay? It's kind of like your, quote unquote, your book end. I'm going to come back and unfold this. We're going to tie all this in, make this as clean as we can. But I just want you to say, verse 17, Nathan, now he released this, all of it to the entire vision to David. He didn't hold anything back, by the way. If you hear from the Lord prophetically, can I just encourage you to release that? Like, don't hold back. Don't filter it. You know, take it before the Lord and then give it to him. And then in verse 18, what you're going to see is a whole lot of prayer. David's response. Remember, all he thought was the no. This, this is all he heard, Right? And now all of a sudden he's going to release a whole lot more. In verse 18 it says, And David went in, sat in the Lord's presence, and said, Whoa, <laughs> who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? What have you done? So far was a little thing to you, Lord God, for you have also spoken your servant's house. Remember I said you're going to see lots of language of servant? Ten times you're going to see this word servant. For also have spoken your servant's house in the distant future. And this is the revelation for mankind, Lord God. Who? So what David was promised, he just released. This is a revelation for who? For mankind. He doesn't just say, oh, this is great for me. He says, this is for everybody. I don't know how he knew this, this discernment factor, but he knew that this was for mankind. What more can David say to you? I love that he talks in third person, by the way. Has anybody ever said your own name in a prayer? Well, you can. You can. It's, it's biblical. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God, because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. He says, this is why you're great, Lord God. There is no one like you. And there's no God beside you as all we have heard confirms. And who is like your people, Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself and to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out nations. And they're gods before your people. You redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You established your people Israel to be your own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise. Here it is again, okay? 25 ties into that language that this revelation is for mankind. In verse 25, it says, Fulfill the promise forever so that you have, you have made to your servant and his house. Do as you have promised. So he is saying, God, I want you to fulfill verse 16. Just so everybody's on the same page. He is now saying, I want you 
to fulfill three major things. And this is where I really want us to unpack today. And it, to me, it's, man, it's just, this is awesome. I want you to fulfill, okay, one, okay? I want you to fulfill the house of David. Okay, does that make sense? 2 Samuel 7, 16. Okay, if you go back to that. So he is saying in 25, fulfill the promise that I just heard. I'm going to come back to this. So that your name in verse 26 will be exalted forever when it is said, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you since you, the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this. Yeah, this is awesome. To your servant. When you said, I will build a house for you. Therefore, your servant has found the courage. I love that, by the way, that David, we sang that today. We overcame fear and give us courage. Your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. Lord, it, by the way, that's a big prayer. Fulfill now what you just told me, God. I receive what you just said. Sometimes when people give you a prophetic word, if you haven't ever walked into something like that, we'll say, hey, do you receive what you just heard? This is why we say those kind of things. God, I receive this. Bring this to fruition. And in this process, he says, Lord God, in verse 28, you are God, your words are true, and you have promised this grace to your servant. Now, please bless your servant's house so that it will continue before you forever. For you, Lord God, have spoken, and with, you, with your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed forever. All right. So, Kevin, would you go to 2 Samuel 7, 16? And David says, right, in 25, would you fulfill all of this? What is this? Okay, your house, he says, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So the house, this language of the house of David is what I want to unpack a little bit today, okay? The house of David is also known as the dynasty. We've called this lesson the dynasty of David. Another language of the house of David, okay, is the son of David. It's a seed. It's a lineage. Okay? So he is saying, God, would you establish your house? Would you allow the seed, the son of David, to come in, into fruition? Now, would you go to John 7? This is where I want you to start taking some notes. We're going to run through some threads here. John 7, verse Kevin, verse 40. John 7, verse 40 through 44. John 7, 40 through 44. When some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this really is the prophet? And others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scriptures in the Old Testament, that's what they would be talking about, by the way. Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring? Well, remember this language. They're anticipating this word offspring, by the way, okay, is also the same language of house, same language of son. Okay, does that make sense? So in their mind, prophetically, hey, we know that the Messiah has got to come from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived. So they're having this conversation. If it really is the house of David, if Jesus is really the guy, he's got to come from Bethlehem. Verse 43. So a division occurred among the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So what was the discussion? That the Jews knew that the house of David, the son of David, had to have come from where? Bethlehem. So if you want to see a tie-in from David, the Davidic covenant, you've got to see that that guy's got to come from Bethlehem. Go to Micah 5, verse 2. Micah 5, verse 2. Here's this language of this. 
This is where they know the scriptures. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. So they know, go back, Kevin, if you don't mind. They know that the religious know to be a ruler over Israel, you're coming from Bethlehem. So when David gets this Davidic covenant, this picture that you're going to have the house forever, a seed forever, they know that this son, this Messiah, has to come through Bethlehem. Now, if you go to Matthew 2, verse 1. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod. We don't even need to go on. We just know that Jesus was born in the house of of bread, Bethlehem, house of bread. So the house of David, you know already, you guys, the son of David, he was established simply by where he was born. Everybody with me on this? So when you hear Davidic words, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Kevin, can you go to Luke 1, 32 through 33? Luke 1, 32 through 33. So this son of David language, okay? Luke 1, 32 through 33. Uh, this is kind of a cool picture. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Remember this angelic word spoken over Jesus? And the Lord God will give him uh, the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now go back, Kevin, if you don't mind. Now look at this. Who is his father? Who is, in this language, it's his father, David. Jesus, his father, is David in this language, which would fit the Davidic covenant. We have to understand the Old Testament, you guys, in order to understand really who Christ is. It's such a Jewish book, the whole thing. So when you only read uh, the New Testament, like how many of us love watching the second version, the second part of a movie? Well, you like to watch the first one, don't you? The first one sets the stage for the second. But in Christianity, I've never figured out why we like to only read the second or watch the second part of the movie. The first one sets the stage for the second. And when you begin to understand the son of David, the promise that came to David, you will understand that that's Jesus. Okay, now that's one language in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. Now we have more language, and this is kind of, I mean, I, I just, I, I love this text. Uh, let's do another one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll go there. Another language is the kingdom, right? Kingdom language. And I'm going to put the kingdom of David. You're, you'll understand why in a second. Okay, that's kind of the language that they're using. But here's what I really want to write. The key of David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, right? If you go back, it says, Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Okay? So we've already established that the house is coming through Christ, right? We've established that. How does the kingdom get established through, through, through Jesus? Like, what does that look like? What is the language? Well, Kevin, if you can, can you go to Isaiah 22, verse 20, 21, and 22? Isaiah 22, 20, 21, and 22. Okay? Isaiah 22, verse 20, 21, and 22. On that day, I will call for my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and tie your sash around him. Remember the hears 
and then the futures, okay? I will put your authority into his hand, and he will be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. In verse 22, it says this, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. So in order for the kingdom to endure forever, you have to have the key. That's the bottom line. You have to have the key. And look at that language. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. Can you go to Revelation 3, Kevin, for me? Revelation 3, verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7. It says this, Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David. There's seven churches in the book of Revelation. In one of those, in this description in the church of Philadelphia, it says he has the key of David. And look what it does. Who opens and no one will close, and closes and no one opens. So, and you got to keep going to verse 8. Uh, do I want to? No, let's not. Let's just hang out there, though. Isn't that, does that make sense? So prophetically in Isaiah, it says that there will be a one that's given a key that nobody can open or close unless you have this key. And this key gives you access to the kingdom. Can I just say, interesting enough, in Matthew, Jesus gives us the keys. His authority, he entrusts to us so that we can do that work. Okay, but back up just for a second. The kingdom's going to endure forever and you have to have a key. Now, go to Rome, uh, Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 8 through 10. Okay, I told you we're going to kind of go with some, a lot of verses. Revelation 5, 8 through 10. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, it says this in verse 9. They sang a song. You are worthy to take uh, the scroll and to open its seals. Why? How? How did this person, Jesus, get to open the scrolls that nobody else could? Because he was slaughtered and redeemed. He redeemed people for God by your blood for every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them, look at this, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on earth. Why? Because Jesus is the only one that can open the scrolls. He's the only one that has key to the kingdom. He's the only one that can open and close. It's the key of David that's key. That was weird. <laughs> Whatever. That's why we have this random key up here. It's a symbol that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through the key. He holds it. And yet, for some reason, the church is starting to dance with this theology. Can I just tell you, you guys, if there's any other religion out there that says Jesus is not God, it's a false religion. It's a cult. There's no other way around it. Don't get confused. Well, they kind of, Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, but he is God. That's how he has the key. So when David receives this uh, prophetic word from Nathan that God gave and says, hey, by the way, the son of David's coming through you and the key of David's coming through you. And, and, and what does he say? He says, God, I want you to bring all of this to fruition. That's his prayer. And he says, for all mankind. You see, 2 Samuel 7 is like the heart of what's to come. I don't understand how how David knew when he prayed. But God, bring this to fulfillment. And what he's ultimately saying is, is Jesus, just like Moses said, Lord, how long is this going to be? And so he says, fulfill this, allow this to come to fruition. 
You've got another promise. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, man. No, go to Psalm. Yeah, we don't have time. That's all right. Here's the other one. The throne of David. All of this, you guys, comes through 2 Samuel 7, 16. But if you just look at the text like it's an Old Testament prophetic word, you miss it all. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, remember, your house and your kingdom will endure for, before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now, the part that's swirly about all this when you study it, like kingdom and throne, they kind of just intertwine. The house, it kind of intertwines. So it's kind of like he gives you your lanes, right? And yet he separates it as well. All right, this one's going to go a little bit deep, and I want you to hang in here with me, okay? Because this is the fun one, okay? I thought the key of David was going to be fun, but I just thought, let's hang out here with this one. Can you go to Acts 2, 29 through 36? And by the way, I, there's nothing more fun than watching how Scripture all ties together. Acts 2, 29 through 36. Now, brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's dead. He is both dead and buried. Now, this is, you guys, in the New Testament. There are theories that David is going to come back to life. Okay? In Ezekiel, it talks about David maybe being there. Well, I believe it's just talking about Christ. Right? Does that make sense? Like, your lineage is coming. So, there is some conversation. That would have been Ray's issue. Like, he would have had this conversation and answered all the questions. I'm acting like he's here. That's even more weird. <laughs> I speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him. Now watch this. David knew that he had received an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, this is David. He spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. So when you hear 2 Samuel 7, David knew the resurrection of the Messiah. That's what this text says. He was not left in Hades. This Messiah in his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus. We're all witnesses of this. Like, this is such clean language, you guys. Therefore, since he's been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens. But he himself says. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is David is dead. David's in the tomb. Jesus is not. So that's why we know that this promise that he received in 2 Samuel 7 is not David. It has to be his lineage. And so he says, it was not David in verse 34 who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord. That's an interesting phrase, by the way. David is saying, Kevin, can you go back? David is saying, and he's quoting, by the way, uh, Psalm 110, this mentality. Um, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So, what is he anticipating? That the Lord will be on the right hand of the Father. Right? On the throne. 
And it says that David knew that when he received it in 2 Samuel 7. How else do you say that he would know? I don't know, except he received that revelation and then he said, make it come to fruition for all of mankind. Okay, everybody with me? Okay, go to Zechariah 6, verse 13. Zechariah 6, verse 13. It says, yes, he will build the Lord's temple. He will be clothed in splendor and what will happen? And will sit on his throne and rule. There will be a priest, also will be a priest on his throne, and there will be a peaceful council between the two of them. What you see already is just a minor prophet picture of that the king will be on the throne. So all we're trying to show is a couple pictures of he's going to be prophetically on the throne. Kevin, if you can, can you go to Psalm 110? Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. Okay, it says, The Lord declared to my Lord, what does it say? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. You guys, this prophetic language is everywhere. And the language is son of David, key of David, throne of David. The language is son of David, key of David, throne of David. Son of David, key of David, throne of David. Now, uh, there's some more here, and I want to I want to unpack just a little bit more. Uh, go to Mark 12, 35 through 37. Mark 12, 35 through 37. I'm intentionally jumping from old to new, old to new, old to new, because I want you to see how it just it just all goes together. So Jesus asked this question as he taught in the temple complex. How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord. We just talked about this. Sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord. Then how can the Messiah be a son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. I'm going to answer all of this with one verse at the very end. Okay, you've got the house of David, the son of David, you've got the key of David. Uh, and now this is where, Kevin, can you go to Acts 15, 15 through 18? I know I'm throwing verses at you, so I, I hope you guys are with me. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, after these things, now, okay, let me just hit a pause button. I should do that because this is where we're going here. And by the way, because of time, I'm not going to get into this, but I will tell you there's another whole language here that we could get into. And it's called the branch of David as well. I don't want to overlook that one, just so you guys know. You know, you have the stump of Jesse mentality, right? You have that stump of Jesse mentality. Uh, the branch of Jesse comes from Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 23, just so you guys have that. Okay, so I will say that this could be another language. But, and you could tie the son of branch of David into the son of David if you wanted. You know what I mean? Like if you had titles, son of David, key of David, throne of David, this could fit in here or it could be its own. But for the sake of 2 Samuel 7, 7:16, I just wanted to make sure you, you had that, okay? Now, watch this. In Acts 15, 15 through 18, what you're seeing now is we're going to start talking about the end. After these things, this is the, the council. This is the interacting Jerusalem council mentality. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does these things, now known from long ago. Okay, go back to 15, Kevin. So what are we going to see being rebuilt? David's what? Let's go to Amos 9. 
Amos 9, 11 through 12, okay? Amos 9, 11 through 12. Amos 9, 11 through 12. In that day, I will restore the fallen booth of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Uh, one more verse that says, So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. That, is, this is, that are called by my name. This is the Lord's declaration. He will do this. All right, so what's the mentality? Kevin, back to verse 11. He's coming back to rebuild David's tent. Revelation 19, 11, please. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. His rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. Keep going, Kevin, to 12 and on to 16. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He also tramples the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the almighty, uh, the fierce anger of God. Uh, go back for me for a second, Kevin, please. The fierce anger of God, the almighty. And then in verse 16, it says this, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. This is the only time you'll find Jesus actually has a tattoo. And on his thigh, it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is coming to reestablish what was promised. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, is coming to rebuild what was promised. Are you with me on that? But you don't understand this language unless you see this. He's a fulfillment of every one of those aspects. How do I know? Here's your last verse. Revelation 22:16. 16. <laughs> so fun. This verse is it's amazing. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus is the root of David. You know what that means, right? Before. And he's the offspring, which means he's after of David. So Jesus is coming to restore what was promised. He's coming to fulfill what was promised. Jesus is the son of David, the key of David, and the throne of David. He's all above. And so I think for me, um, it's important to note that it says, even in Matthew 21 and Psalm 118, the Jews are waiting for the king. And when they realize the scripture says that they were the ones that pierced him. They will cry out, and he will come back. So, Lord, we just say thank you. 
Uh, I pray, Lord, that this was just clear. I pray, Lord, that they would see the dots, that we would just see it fit together. And I just say thank you, for you knew what you were doing. From Matthew 1.1, you are the son of David. <laughs> and I praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.